0: For those of you I don't know, my name is Steve Winstead. I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest. And um, how have you been enjoying watching the Olympics? Has that been fun? Yeah, a lot of people tell you. My family, we love the Olympics. I mean, we absolutely every night we gather around the TV. We love watching all the different events. We watch the swimming. We watch the gymnastics. We even like some of the, you know, little bit offbeat sports, the sports that you don't even know exist almost until the Olympics show up, from water polo to handball. I'd never seen that before. I mean, we, we just love watching it all. One of the sports that we've particularly been paying attention to this year that we never would have paid attention to before is rowing. Now, the reason is my mother-in-law gave me a book called The Boys in the Boat. And I read it, and then I gave it to my wife, and she read it. And then we bought the kids' version, and our kids read it. And this book is about the 1936 U.S. Olympic rowing team. They're actually making it into a movie, I hear. And what's unique about the... And I'm not... Just so you know, I'm giving away nothing that the back cover of the book doesn't give. In uh, 1936, the unique thing about the Olympics was it was highly controversial because it was taking place in Nazi Germany, And word had been leaking out throughout the world that the Nazis were persecuting Jewish people, that they were persecuting anybody that they viewed as less than. So many countries began to decide, we need to boycott the U.S., one of those. But the Germans managed to deceptively clean up their act enough to trick the world into thinking, what you're hearing is just not true. So the world came to Nazi Germany in 1936 for the Olympics. Well... Rowing, at this time, believe it or not, was the second most popular collegiate sport. Literally, tens of thousands of people would line uh, the, rows, the, the shores of a river to watch rowing competitions. Some competitions drew over 100,000 people. Rowing had uh, originated in, uh, or modern rowing that is, originated in England, and it spread throughout Europe, and then it came to the U.S. in the New England area up in the northeast, and it was predominantly a sport of the uh, elite, the social elite, the economic elite, the academic elite. Schools like Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, they were the schools that dominated rowing. And these schools, they had, for the time, they had indoor rowing facilities that were fabulous. They had the ability to train year-round. They were the ones who dominated. But out west, in Seattle, Washington, at the University of Washington... They had a rowing team as well. They didn't have the nice facilities. They didn't have the ability when it got cold. They would row through the Seattle snow, the Seattle rain that was almost continually coming. They'd row in all sorts of conditions. They'd row in 15 degree weather. But rowing was popular nonetheless there. Several hundred boys would show up every August to try out for the University of Seattle's, University of Washington's rowing team. They never had to cut anybody because about a month and a half into it, most of these boys had quit because it was so difficult. You see, here's the thing about rowing. Apparently, if you do rowing with a proper technique, it uses nearly every single muscle on your body as you move back and forth. And to be a good rower, to be a successful rowing team, you've got to row to the point that every single muscle in your body is burning. I mean, on fire, intense pain. And then you've got to keep rowing. For another six to ten minutes. If you want to be successful. You've got to have self-control. When everything in your body is saying quit, stop. You've got to keep on going. And not only do you have to keep going. You've got to row with precise form. There's a technique to it. And you can't break technique. If you break technique. You, what happens is you, it's called grabbing a crab. That's what happens whenever you row uh, uh, out of form. And the boat sort of jolts to near stop. You also have to row in perfect form with the other seven boys on the boat. So it's a perfect harmony thing. And these boys from Washington State, they weren't the economic or the elite. They were from uh, working class homes. Their parents were miners and loggers and those sorts of things. And they had felt the full impact of the Depression. Most of these boys had to work all summer long just to scrape together enough money to pay for one more year of college. And these working class boys managed to win the 1936 Olympic trials and to go represent the United States in Nazi Germany and face Hitler's German rowing team. And they faced them against all odds. The Germans had everything stacked in their favor. They manipulated and twisted things where they were sure to win. But these boys rowed, and in spite of their body telling them to quit, in spite of insurmountable odds, they managed to narrowly beat the German rowing team for the gold medal. And when we think about self-control, that's often what we think about. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of not wanting to do something, you don't want to do it, you do it anyway because the goal, the prize, the reward is greater than what you have to go through. You want it that bad. Self-control, it's the ability to do what's most important rather than what seems most urgent. Self-control, it's, it's being able to control your actions, control your words, control your thoughts. And so many of us, when we think of self-control, we think of it like that rowing team. Well, for those of you who are maybe here with us first time, or haven't been here in a while, we're finishing up a series today. Typically, we preach through books of the Bible. That's our typical modus of opera- operating, but... This summer, we've preached through the fruit of the Spirit. We've called it the better life, walking in the Spirit, because what we see is that as we walk in the Spirit, God produces within us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit produces in our lives as we abide in Him, and that is the best life we can live is one walking in the Spirit. So today, as we talk about self-control, I thought, man, there's so many places we could go in the Bible. We could go look at the life of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, this guy was tempted by Potiphar's wife, yet he said no, and he exercised self-control. We could go to Daniel in the Old Testament. He was ordered to eat the king's food, and he said, I can't do that. God doesn't permit me, and he exercised self-control. Or we could go to Jesus. I mean, what better place for self-control than Jesus Christ? He exercised it all throughout his life. We see in the temptation, the guy is starving to death, literally about to die from not having eaten in 40 days, and he's tempted to turn stones into bread, and he exercised self-control and says no. Or I thought, well, maybe we'll go to the antithesis of self-control. We'll go to a life that's lived without self-control and show all the chaos that ensued with the life of Samson, a man who was led by his own Urgent desires rather than what was most important. Or we could go to a proverb. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it speaks of self control and it says, A man without self control is like a city broken into and left without walls. See, in the ancient world, a city had to have walls. That was its glory. That's what its defense was. And a city without walls, it was chaotic, it was defenseless. It was actually very dangerous to be there. And that's what a a person without self-control is like. A man without self-control, it's dangerous. They're going to cause destruction. I even thought we could go to last week. Kenan presented seven potential elder candidates. And he read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And one of the key qualifications for an elder is self-control. Well, this morning I decided I wanted us to go to passage in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of what's going on. The church in Corinth gets more literature written to them than any other church in the New Testament. This was a church that was struggling with some issues. They were struggling with issues that were rooted in self-control. They had an issue with snobbery. They looked down as other people as not being as good as themselves. They had an issue with sexual immorality. They could not control their urges. They had a a problem with meat sacrificed to idols. They had a problem with drunkenness. They, They had a problem with worship. Their worship services were chaotic. They were out of control. And Paul is writing to them, Saying, in the midst of your Christian freedoms, you've went crazy. You've went too far and you're out of control. And Paul is saying in this chapter, hey, I've got all these freedoms. But I set aside my freedoms. I exercise self-control and set them aside for a purpose. So that the witness of Jesus Christ is not damaged. He says, I've become all things to all people so I might win some. That was Paul's desire. And Paul writes to this group in terms that they could understand. So let's read the Word of God. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23 and following. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of God. For the people of God and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, in our first verse here, Paul gives us a glimpse of his motivation. What is Paul's reasoning for imploring this church in Corinth, for exercising self-control within himself? What is his reason? It is the gospel. That is his motivation. It's his heartbeat. He wants the gospel to go forward. He wants to see it expand. That's his goal. And Paul says that's the reason he exercises self-control. Now this morning, what we're going to see is three truths about self-control. So I have three points today, and our first one is that there are two different sources of self-control. There's two different sources of self-control. Back in Galatians, where we get the fruit of the Spirit, in Chapter 5, verse 22, just before that, in verses 16 and 17, listen to what Paul says. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want to do. So here's what we see about self control. There are two sources for it. One is your flesh. The other is the spirit. Two different sources for self-control. One is the flesh. One is the spirit. And we see that self-control, spirit-led self-control, is not something we produce within ourselves. It's something that God produces within you as you abide in the spirit. So here's what's odd. We call it self-control, but godly self-control is something that only the Spirit can produce in you. See, true self-control comes from above. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's a gift, self-control is. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to us. But it's not a gift that we just receive passively. It's a gift that we actively receive. We take it. We actively receive self-control. It's something that God gives to us, but we have to be involved in it. Ed Welsh in his book on self-control, he says that God gave the promised land to the Israelites in the Old Testament. God gave it to them, yet they had to go and conquer it city by city by city. So it required their effort Their cooperative effort with what God was doing in His power, it required them to come alongside that. The late Dallas Willard said this. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. You see, here's what grace is. You get what you don't deserve. We deserve to be eternally separated from God by our sin, yet God eternally brings us into his presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot earn that. You can't earn God's favor. You can't earn his pleasure. You can't work hard enough to impress him that he's going to go, you, you, you've cleaned it up. No, we can't earn it. But grace, at the same time, is not opposed to our effort, our effort in cooperation with what the Spirit is doing See, there's a tension this morning. As I prepared for this message, I felt this tension, and my fear was that if we go off the trail on one side or the other side, we're end up in a place that Scripture doesn't take us. One side is this. Well, the Holy Spirit's got to produce self-control within me. And if the Holy Spirit's going to do it, I'm just going to sit here and wait on God to bring it. Bring me some self-control, God. Do it. Scripture doesn't take us there. You've got to cooperate with what the Spirit's doing in your life. At the same time, some are going to look and go, hey, uh, if if it requires some of our effort, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get after it. It's up to me. I'm going for it. I'm going to get self-control. I'm going to try harder, work harder. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to go to church every time the door is open. And you see a Christian that is performing well, but you don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness coming alongside it. So even though they they may be witnessing, it's all out of their own determination, their own self-control. Maybe trying to earn something from God. You see, here's what we see about self-control in Scripture, is that it is something you cannot produce within yourself, only the Spirit can produce godly self-control, but He asks you to come alongside in a cooperative effort with what He's doing. Look at what Paul says just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. Paul's saying, hey, I've worked harder at this than anybody else, but yet it's not me. It's God's grace within me. So do you see where Scripture puts us on this? So to go too far one side or the other, we're missing it. It's God doing this, producing this in us. Fundamental to the Christian understanding of self control is that it comes from God. It's a gift, and it's a gift that we lay a hold of as God works it out in our lives. Let me give you an example of uh, what fleshly self control looks like. Back in the 1960s at Stanford University, a professor did a study. He would take items. He'd take four-year-old kids, put them in a room, and take an item that they might want, cookie, a pretzel, but typically he would take a marshmallow. And he'd take this marshmallow, and he'd say to this four-year-old kid, he'd say, I'm going to put this marshmallow on this table here. I'm going to leave the room. If I come back in 15 minutes and you haven't eaten that marshmallow, guess what? You'll get two. You'll get a second marshmallow. So he'd set one before the kid, and he would leave the room. Some kids, as soon as the door closed, they've eaten it. It's gone. It's gone. Some kids would wait a minute, five minutes. Now, for a four-year-old, 15 minutes, that's like several days. I mean, it seems like forever. Some kids made it to 14 and a half minutes, and then they ate it. What he found was that one-third of the kids did not eat the marshmallow. They could have enough self-control because they wanted to delay gratification to receive two. That was their goal. That was their reward. They wanted two rather than one. So they could show that self-control. Two-thirds did not make it. And here's what he found. He tracked these folks throughout life. And he found that the one-third that did not eat the marshmallow, according to his definition of success, good grades, um, doing well socially, not getting arrested, whatever his definition of success was, the one-third that showed self-control, 100% of them were successful. Of the two-thirds that did not eat the marshmallow, that did eat the marshmallow, 80% of them were struggling in some area or another. They're having a hard time. Well, a Colombian professor saw this study and thought, well, maybe that's just American culture. Let me try this in Colombia. So he took some kids four to six, put the marshmallow before them to see what they'd do. And he actually videoed it, and I want to show you some of these kids' reactions to trying not to eat the marshmallow. Here it is. <laughs> Track on that video helps us out. That, that little girl, you know, that was like hyperventilating over, it, you know what she did? She ate the middle of the marshmallow and then covered it up and set it back there like she never touched it. <laughs> the professor said, Now that little girl he said, she'll be successful, but you're gonna have to watch her. <laughs> Don't let her handle your money or anything. <laughs> well, what the Columbian professor found was the exact same results. A third of the kids did not eat the marshmallows. Two-thirds did eat the marshmallow. And what that study shows us is that some of us have a measure of self-control that's just there in our flesh. Just got it. Others, it doesn't come as naturally. You just don't have it. It's harder. But some have a measure of that self-control there with them. And even if you are one of those who have that self-control there, that one-third, you can still struggle greatly with spirit-led self-control. And even if you're one of those two-thirds who does not have uh, good self-control, natural, guess what? When you become a Christian, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and the Spirit will produce in you the fruit of the Spirit as you abide in Him. And part of that is self-control. So God can produce a spirit-led self-control within you. Now Paul, he's writing to this church that's witnesses damage because of their lack of control and they're living chaotically, and he's going to write to them in terms that they would understand. Now you see, the church in Corinth was very near the Olympic Games. Fifty miles away was Athens where the Olympic Games occurred, and actually right there in the city of Corinth, they had what was called the Ithmian Games. Ithmian games were the second most popular games. And in order to compete in the Ithmian games, you had to complete a 10-month, very precise, very strict training regimen. If you missed any part of it, you couldn't even step to the starting line. And then the last month of that training regimen, you had to move to Corinth and complete the training under strict supervision. And Paul is writing to them here, and in verse 24 he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners want run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. All the runners have the same goal. What is it? The prize. They all want to receive the prize. That's their goal. And as we saw that just as there are two different sources, the flesh and the spirit, there's going to be two different goals. You see... In a a, a flesh-led condition, it's going to be the goal is my glory, my fame, my name, my recognition. Spirit-led self-control, the goal is God's glory. The name of Jesus lifted high, Him glorified, Him honored. That's the goal. See, we often, even maybe in our Christian activities, can fall into a hey, I want people to know I'm a good Christian, but I, I sort of want the glory. It's easy to do. You see, the Christian way of self-control is not just saying no to things, but it's saying no, controlling yourself, being disciplined, knowing it's for a, by, by the power of a higher power by Jesus Christ for something that is more precious, more sweet than, a, than your own glory. You see, the real test is who gets the glory. Do you get the glory, or does Jesus Christ get the glory? Does he get honored? Kenan mentioned last week that, um, hey, through this series, that all our pastors have been preaching on the fruit of the Spirit, every pastor just sort of ended up with their issue. You know, that's just sort of where they landed. And Kenan said, you know, Steve's preaching next week, and he may be the only one not preaching on his issue. Well, what I found is as I've studied self-control, it's very much my issue. It's very much an issue I have. Those who know me uh, and have been on trips with me know that a few years ago I um, decided I was going to start back running. So in order to do so, I said, I'm going to run every day at least one mile for one month. If I run every day one mile for one month, I can get back running. Well, that was a few years ago, and I've run every day at least one mile since. Now, I've run all over the world. I've run in all sorts of conditions, rain and snow and sleet. I've run with 105-degree, 103-degree fever. I've run um, in airports in the Middle East to keep the streak going. I've done all sorts of silly things just to keep this silly, ridiculous streak going. Now, I usually run first thing in the morning. When I wake up, check, it's done. Got it. Don't have to think about it. Some days I get up and I have a meeting, I have somewhere to go, and I don't run first thing in the morning, so uh, the day goes and it'll be reaching near the end of the day. And maybe Margaret and I will be driving home, we've got the kids, we've got to get home, we're crunch for time, we've got to put them to bed, and I'll say this to her, I hadn't run today. And she knows what that means. That means when we get home, I'm not going to be patient, I can't wait to run, I've got to go run. So if you need me to help put the kids to bed, you've you got to be on your own for a little while, I've got to go run. There's not going to be any joy in me. There's there's not going to be any uh, uh, kindness. No, I've got to run, check that box off, and then I'll be present with you. But until that happens, I'm not here. Now, that is a self-control for my own silly glory. To keep this silly streak alive, it's all about me. It has nothing to do with the glory of God. And it's all done by my own flesh. It's isn't by the power of the Spirit of God. It, it, it's by me. And here's the way we can tell the difference. Self-control that is, comes from the fruit of the Spirit is always accompanied by the other fruit of the Spirit because it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the one fruit. One fruit, nine aspects. We haven't been preaching on several fruits. It's one fruit. So self-control is like the anchor of them all. It engages all of them. Self-control will remind me To love my neighbor, even when I may not feel like it. It will even remind me to to love my enemy. Self-control will tell my heart and my mind that my joy is not found in the things of this world. I'll never find joy here. Not like that. It'll be fleeting. I find true joy only in Jesus Christ. Self-control will... Tell my heart and my soul in the midst of anxious moments and worry moments where I want to try to figure things out, it'll tell me, hey, God gives us a peace that transcends all understanding and if you bring your request to Him, He'll give you a greater taste of that. It's self-control that'll help me to be patient with people and with situations that I can't control and trust Him. It's self-control, the fruit of self-control that'll help me be kind with those people who they just push my buttons for some reason. It's self-control that will help me to be good, expecting nothing in return. It's self-control that will help my tongue and tone to speak gently to others. It's self-control that helps us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You see, the fruit of self-control should always be accompanied by these other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. When it's not, it's probably flesh-based self-control. And we've all seen people who, sure, they have self-control, but I don't want to be around them. Sure, they have a disciplined spiritual life, but I don't want to be like them. You see, spirit-led self-control produces all of them. It engages all of these. So this is the test. And a lot of us, may have the willpower to drum up some semblance of self-control and perform and do things, but I tell you, we get the glory for that, not God. A Christian will never be satisfied in their own little glory world. You're only going to be satisfied when you're living for the glory of someone higher of Jesus Christ. That's where the Christian finds their great joy is in his glory rather than our own. Now, Paul, in verse 25, listen to what he says. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. These athletes, they exercise self-control in everything they do. I was reading about Katie Ledecky. She's been winning a lot of medals in this Olympics. She's a swimmer. She wakes up at five every single morning. She's been doing that since the last Olympics. And then she eats something, lets it digest. Her parents drive her to the pool because she hasn't had time at 19 years old to go get her license because she's swimming all the time. They drive her to the pool. She swims three and a half miles, comes home, eats something, goes back to bed, wakes up, eats something, lets it digest, goes back to the pool, swims four and a half miles, comes home, eats something, and goes to bed at the exact same time every night. She exercises immense self-control. Why does she do that? Why does she exercise this self-control? Why do those little gymnasts, when they were talking to them and they go, Hey, we've given up the, going to high school dances, high school football games. We've sacrificed all this for this moment. For this. Because there is something that they want. There is a reward they want. Look at what Paul says halfway through verse 25. He says, they do it to receive a perishable reef." But we are imperishable. These athletes are exercising immense self control in order to get a reef that is gonna perish. You see, in the Ithmian Games, if you won, you were given a pine reef. And that pine reef represented to the Greek culture that you were to be honored, acclaimed, famed. You were a hero. But just like that pine reef would perish, so would the athlete's glory. You know, that the athletes in the Olympics, they compete for a gold medal. That's what they want. Worth $366. That's made up primarily of other metals. only the outside is covered in God's pavement gold. And that's what they do all this for. Is for what comes along with that. And Paul is saying, no, I exercise self-control for something that's imperishable. And that brings us to our third point. We've seen one that... There are two different sources, the flesh and the spirit. We've seen that there are two different glories, your glory or God's glory. And now we see that there are two different rewards, two different rewards. One that is perishable and another that is imperishable, that will not perish. And that's what Paul says that he is living for. You see, every one of us live our life controlling ourselves for what reward we hope to to get. We live for the rewards. So maybe your reward is comfort and you want to have a comfortable, easy life. So you are living trying to build that comfortable house, trying to get that comfortable situation, trying to make it where you can come home and watch TV, whatever your comfort is. Some it's security. Hey, so we live to build our nest egg and to get everything just in the right financial order, in the right spot where we are secure in this world. Maybe the reward is recognition. Maybe it's others' opinions on you. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's being a good parent. Some of these aren't bad things. But we live our lives, we control ourselves with whatever reward we are aiming to get. And look at what Paul says. His is imperishable. That's what reward he wants. In verse 26 and 7, he spells it out further. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I should myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I don't do this aimlessly. All these athletes, they are doing it, and it's all about their glory. No, mine isn't aimless. I have a purpose. I have a reason. What is it? I don't want to be disqualified from the prize. Now, he's not talking about... Eternity with God here. That's secure in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the rewards that Scripture speaks of we receive in heaven. That reward of hearing this, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul wants to live a life where he gets to heaven. And his time here on earth has been stewarded in such a way that it brings glory to God. You see, Paul started off, he does all this for the sake of the gospel. Why does Paul control himself? Why does he discipline himself? Why does he set aside freedoms that he's got? Why does he do that? For the sake of the gospel, so others will hear and come to know and see and glorify Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. That was his heartbeat. And this church in Corinth, they're struggling with that idea. You see, when we get to heaven, we're going to, Get a reward based on how we've stewarded our life and our question is are we living for a reward here on earth more than we are heaven if you're turning your eyes to here it's all going to be about you but if you turn your eyes to heaven it's going to be about him and his glory and his purpose and his fame and his name and he will supply you with the power to live it out right. you see as we've went through the fruit of the spirit here's what i found myself doing i found myself as I've studied this craving to taste it more I want to taste more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in my life. I really do. It's something I want. But it can only come as I abide in the Spirit. I can't make myself get it. As I abide in the Spirit, God will work with me and give me the control I need to bring it out. It's got to come with me working and Him bringing it. And as I do that, as we do that as a people, others will see in us the fruit of the Spirit. And that's our best witness. We witness to Jesus Christ as others see in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And go, where does that come from? And we say, Christ produced that in me. But we've all probably seen or experienced or been that Christian who will share about Jesus without any love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or self-control. No, God produces that in us, and we declare His glory to a world that does not know Him. That is the fruit of the Spirit working its way out in our lives. And my hope is that that, I would taste that more next month than I do now. That we will taste it more next year than we do now. That you'll taste it more in years to come than you do right now. That you'll continually taste more and more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life as you abide in Christ. That's my hope for us, my prayer, is that we would be a people, a church marked by the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. When we talk about self-control, there is no greater example than Jesus Christ. The night before he died, he said, God, take this cup from me. He did not want to take the sin of the world upon him, yet he endured the scorn, he endured the shame, To glorify the Father for the great reward of redeeming sinners like us for God's glory. He endured it. And then he came and he offered a table where we get to come and commune with him. And each week we take communion here at Harvest. And we do it to remind ourselves that we have a God that we can abide in and commune with and connect with. And the table is open to anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, who is a new creation, who is living and seeking to live by God's Spirit and abide in Him. But Scripture also says if we have something against our brother, or we have some sin that we know about and we haven't repented of it, that we need to take care of that before we come to the table. So as we open the table, I invite you to examine your heart, to examine your mind, and to ask God, God, are there things that you need to work on me with? God, do you need to produce more fruit in my life? And am I being stubborn and not allowing that to happen? Would you help me to cooperate more? Would you allow me to taste more of the fruit of the Spirit? We'll have some of our ministry team around the worship center. If you need to talk to somebody, pray with somebody, tell them there is absolute power in prayer. So sometimes if you're looking at this, just find somebody and pray with them. They'll be around the worship center. I'm going to pray and then we'll open up the tables. God, I do thank you. I thank you that your word is living and active. You haven't left us without a witness of yourself. And God, I thank you that it's not up to any of us. Lord, we are quick to want to bring glory to our name, to be recognized, for others to esteem us. Lord, but that's our flesh. Lord, our soul, because we're a new creation, craves the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our lives. So I pray that that would be tasted in ever-increasing measure by your power as you work within us. I pray that we would not be a people who are defined by having no control of ourselves. Or a people who are defined by having a control that is harsh and uh, difficult and not loving and not joyful, But that we would be a people who are marked by your hand upon us, your spirit abiding in us and producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Lord, now as we come to the table, may we celebrate the fact that we are secure in Jesus, that you are our great reward And that we look forward to being with you eternity. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.